0: so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Jay Baruch about the new book, Tornado of Life. A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Stories from the ER. A doctor shows how empathy, creativity, and imagination are the cornerstones of clinical care. Jay, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Galina. I'm honored to be here.
0: So how are you? How was your week? Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) My week is good. You know, dealing with... You know, um, a little bit of a you know, a, a, actually, it's, it's actually a romantically challenging health week, which I have some kind of virus that is not COVID. So there's uh, <laughs> something romantic—the fact that there's you know viruses out there that are not COVID that can knock you a little bit under the weather. But all, all, all in all, doing. Um, <laughs> if my voice is scratchy, that's that's the reason. But um, but otherwise, doing great. And thank you for for having me
0: oh wow i hope you feel better i suppose soon uh, through...
1: no we're good i'm i'm excited to i'm excited to be here and to join you and to um and to hopefully you know uh join your community of listeners so this is a really great honor for me
0: excellent so can you tell us what do you do
1: i am uh, <laughs> I am an ER doc. I have been practicing clo- emergency medicine uh, here in the United States for close to 30 years. Uh, I am also a writer. Uh, I actually went to college or university to be a writer and an English professor and, and studied English literature and, and, and actually was intending to go into uh, a more creative and/or and or scholarly pathway, and, and then found myself um, found myself in medicine, uh, largely for the reasons that I loved being an English major and a writer, which was um, the ability to interact with stories, but this time in a in a very different way, um, talking to patients.
0: This is such an interesting career pathway so were you ever interested in medicine when you were a uh, a child for example um i
1: I think i was you know i came my my parents weren't physicians my mom was a teacher my dad was an engineer um my i had like distance cousins who were physicians and and um i think that pathway was always sort of mentioned to me Uh, i was never really uh someone who was absolutely great at the sciences i was more of a of a language person and and plus i I had a i had and still have like i think a a serious uh problem with self-doubt and uh, and i never yeah i don't know whether i never would never enter my mind because i never thought i would actually ever get into to medical school uh in the first place i didn't think i was smart enough and so and plus, I, from the time I was a little kid, I can't explain why I always wanted to be a writer and I always loved English and I always loved literature and stories. And what ended up happening was uh, in my university, as a, as a fluke, I happened to you know, sort of think about it a little bit and I happened to just have an impromptu discussion with a with a professor said well why don't you just like take a course and and you know I took a course and and found I, I was interested in it and liked it and but then more importantly I took one class that involved going into a a local hospital um, that was actually part of the class and um, and part of our responsibility was we would we would go to different Areas of the hospital, and and generally, you know, you're an undergrad student. What what can you do, like, and keep you out of the way without being dangerous, and it involved um, talking with patients. And I would work with a chaplain, you know, and one and one particular group that I really found myself fascinated with was actually um, on the oncology ward, and you know, people wanted to tell their stories, and and what I found really interesting. Alina, at that time was while in class, you know, I was talking about stories on a sort of a very high level, a very esoteric level. Um, Here I was able, but I wasn't able to interact with them in, in a manner that was was as um, real and as tactile, and and perhaps even intervene in their lives if I had the skills and the training to do so. And I, I really found myself captivated in by medicine, by the stories of patients and the experiences they were going through, and and their need to tell their stories, and and the fact that you know I didn't think I was going to be the next Nobel Prize winner, I wasn't going to be a great scientist. I didn't think I was going to be the next, you know, great diagnostician. Um, but I but I, I thought I was able to get at something perhaps from my training um, and my the way my mind was bent and my love for stories and how I think about how we try to capture experiences. And it really wasn't until later on that I, I found that, that um, I saw a pattern in my career where I, I think I was trying to all along try to combine the two, um, and uh, which, uh, you know, I, whether I've done it successfully or not <laughs> is is up for is up for debate. But 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 I've been trying to to merge those two paths ever since, and that's been going on. And that's been a, a project that's taken me thirty years.
0: And these two of your passions are beautifully brought together in your latest book, The Tornado of Life A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. So, how did you come to writing it?
1: Uh, most of, almost all my writing, Galina, comes from a place of um, like emotional discomfort. You know, I wrote two books before this that were fiction, short fiction, and and those stories, you know, came out of, you know, again, like these, trying to figure things out on the page. I mean, I, as a, as someone who thinks, like I, I, I think differently when I write, uh, and I, and I feel like, like there were so many things that were that were troubling me. Um, in my, I come back from the hospital. Uh, and I'd be figuring it out on the page. And and it wasn't meant to be written, to be seen, to be create to be put into a story or an essay or anything like that. It was really for me to sort of figure it out um, and to play with possibilities and, and to actually sort of track my own thinking process. And I find that, you know, putting words to the page is really something really interesting happens because you it's such a granular experience. You know, it's a construction that you then you find yourself taking taking detours and certain things trigger certain other things. And you find yourself in these unexpected places that are absolutely wonderful, you know, and unexpected that wouldn't have happened, at least for me, if I was just thinking, you know, like, OK, I'm going to think about this. You get very particular, you get granular, you see. And I, I don't know whether I can say this on the podcast, but you can also identify where you're bullshitting yourself. Right when you're letting yourself off the hook, when you're when you're being too easy in yourself, you're saying no, 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 no. That's not really what you were thinking. You were thinking this, you know. And, and you can go into those places. You can go into those layers. You can get deeper. And so, what happens, you know, with this book is you know, it's, a, it's a book of nonfiction essays. It are really all end products of those struggles. And there, and what drove me essentially to actually, eventually put this book together um, was that the there's a public appetite for what emergency medicine is that that sort of centers around sort of this high drama um, and the blood and 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 oftentimes that's like the easy stuff because the problem is very pretty much well defined and, and and oftentimes the responses are somewhat algorithmic. But the but the parts that were so hard that would keep me up at night that would make me, that, that would make me rack my brains, that would, that we would, that we wouldn't talk about, but maybe we'd talk about in private amongst ourselves were these things that were, that were harder to grasp, that were harder to put into words. And it really had to do with dealing with patient stories that were difficult, that were rich with uncertainty and with ambiguity, with lives in crisis. And it's not just sort of the body that has gone awry, um, but also like the social conditions of these lives, of the lives you're living, you know, the socioeconomic issues, their mental health struggles, substance use struggles, um, you know, just issues of just bad luck, making bad choices. And and how we respond to like, how we listen, and then how do we respond to that? and how And how do we respond to those situations where, perhaps we don't have an answer for, you know, and how do we respond to those situations where if we solve one problem, sometimes we're creating other problems. Um, And and I wanted to, I wanted to like tackle those issues, which is essentially a very, you had nothing to do with medicine per se, but everything to do with how humans interact. Like how do we tell challenging stories to each other? Um, and how do we understand one another?
0: Is, is that why your book is called as it is, "Tornado of Life"?
1: Well, the tornado of life actually came from um, a particular experience with a. Um, this happened many years ago. Uh, a woman who was going through a just um, a series of just bad life events. Some of her do on some of her. Some that was of her doing, some that was not of her doing. But essentially, it was like some of us are are lucky enough to have, you know, a safety net to fall on. And, and her life, she had no safety net, you know. And <clears throat> she, was, she started off as being sort of very, you know, quote unquote, someone who might be labeled as sort of a difficult patient you know, and I always feel like patients who were quote unquote labeled as difficult. Oftentimes are, they themselves are not difficult, but their stories are difficult. But, you know, she was a little bit of a a, a mixture of both. And, and, and I couldn't get her to talk. Like she was screaming and yelling for attention. Then I couldn't get her to talk, you know, and I was chatting with her and trying to sort of just not fill the space, you know, and then she started to, to talk and, and, and she said, you know, um, she, she described her series of experiences of one bad thing happening after another bad thing happening after another bad thing. She surprised me with this just beautiful, beautiful statement that was so profound and so poignant and so heartbreaking. She looked at me and she goes, I'm stuck in the tornado of life. You know, it was so stunning and it stopped me, you know, and it was a moment of sort of real connection. And and when you think about like what we do as, you know, how do we take our academic, those of us who are in the world of academia, you know, in our hallowed halls, um, and how do we take these larger discussions, these big ideas that we're thinking about, or that we learn and apply them, you know, on the ground, you know. And i and as an ER doc, you know, I, I try to test everything that I do, all the things I'll, I learn, in saying like, how does it work in real life, you know? And how can I use this? And, you know, there's a a, a sociologist by the name of Arthur Frank who, who um, wrote a book in which he describes three. Excuse me. Illness narratives, like he's—they're not discrete. They're three different things, but they're—they're they're three different narrative sort of um, uh, approaches or way to frame narrative frames that that are brilliant, and they overlap. It's not like you go from one to another, but they—they they, there's some overlap to them. But I—but I, but I feel like it was so important because I found that his framing at that moment. Was so applicable to this particular moment and how to understand it and how to respond respond to it. So he 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 framed these as sort of the the um, restitution narrative, the quest narrative, and the chaos narrative, which is and she fit into this chaos narrative. And let me explain what what they are for your listeners because I think it's important the the. And, and I'm, and believe me, I am doing a total disservice to Arthur Frank's scholars' um, scholarly work. Um, but, but this is for for the sake of our discussion, and and for my smallest brain, this is how I I've captured it. Like the the restitution narrative is really the the narrative, the prevailing narrative that we that that we operate in in medicine. You know, when you think about it, it's like the it's like the commercial. I don't know what, what countries people are, but like in America, like we'll have these, these really, uh, this pati- a particular narrative arc our commercials where like, let's say you have the sniffles, you're sick, you take this purple pill with an impronounceable name. <laughs> and then you, the next, the next, you know, scene is, you know, you're on a beautiful, Sunday, you know, in a super saturated light, and you're kicking the ball and playing the frisbee with your dog, and everything's well. So you were well. You were sick. You took this pill, and you returned back to the kingdom of the well, like you returned back to who you were before. The quest narrative, and and you think about it, like that's how we operate, you know, in medicine. It's like we want to, we want to, we want people to have, return them back to who they were. That's our more com that is the more comfortable narrative that we operate the next narrative he talked about which is like this quest narrative which borrows from the the work of Joseph Campbell which is you know you're well and then you're you get pushed off in this land of the ill you know and 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 Arthur Frank who's a, a cancer survivor and he writes about this in his book so I'm not disclosing any private information he writes openly about this book and beautifully so um and and if you're and then you get initiated into this world you get tested in this world and if you're lucky and if you're fortunate you get to come back but you're not the same person you were like when you left like you get you're changed a little bit by the experience or a lot by the experience and you might have experienced things that perhaps you can't even expect talk about to the people who are closest to you, you know? And the last part is the chaos narrative. And, you know, the chaos narrative are those experiences that oftentimes are just so hard to put into words, you know, and often they'll, they'll, they're built on this idea of devastation. Like there's a hole in the, there's a hole H O L E in the telling. Um, And like, and this happened and this happened and then, and then, and then, and then. And And the problem with chaos narratives is they can be really frustrating to listen to, especially in a medical context because there's no answer for them. You know, and one of the biggest mistakes we can make as clinicians, and I think just as any listeners, as human to human, is try to take someone's really complex, disordered, frenzied experiences, and then try to make them neat and 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 put them into a different type of story. And and sometimes the worst thing we can do for people in this situation is saying, Oh, things are gonna get better. When we don't know that for a fact, it doesn't honor their experience. So how it worked in this case is that, you know, the response to people with chaos narratives is one is to recognize you're listening to a chaos narrative, which then gives you permission to just listen and give them space. Um, and so that's, what that's what I did. And, 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 and sometimes not forcing people into a like forcing her into a restitution narrative would have been a disaster, you know, because I'd be saying this, we're going to get you back into something and, and I can return you back to an earlier life when I don't even know whether she even knows what that life is. Um, and it makes so many presumptions that that doesn't really honor her experience that she's going through. Uh, and so that's why that was' in, that's why those narratives are important. Um, I think in understanding um, how we're listening to each to patients and how we listen to each other um, but the, and that's where the tornado of life came from because it was a, a really just a fantastic moment, a powerful moment for me when I when I, I realized that there are certain, tools that we can borrow from other fields and take into our own experiences Um, and we should be giving ourselves permission to to do that.
0: Mm, These are such profound insights. So I was wondering if you could maybe describe to us how does ER really look like like for you, for example, on a daily basis and where you can apply these
1: in your work? The I know, um, your listeners are all over the world. Um, you know, at least in, in my ER, I work in a, uh, a level one trauma center. So it's a regional, um, referral center with, um, hundred beds, a like big, big, big ER, big modern ER, big modern place. Um, we see very, very sick people. We see, uh, a lot of patients who just can't get care anywhere else, or can't get timely care elsewhere, or don't have insurance. Um, we see all kinds of problems. We see problems from like from strokes and heart attacks and terrible traumas and people who are acutely ill and terrible infections. We like so many other ERs and hospitals in the world, you know, had our COVID moments as well. We had, we had a very high COVID rate um, at one point. Rhode Island was one of the highest per capita in the world. Um, and so we were, we were, we had our, we had our COVID moments and respond, trying to respond to that and how, and, and so there were certain elements um, build into that structure of of my practice, which actually applies to to I feel emergency medicine almost everywhere, if not medicine as a whole, which is we have like a lack of time with patients. Now we're not as much time as we would want. Um, we have patients coming in with a multitude of medical and social problems um, mm-hmm. um many of which are you know there's like sometimes three or four problem. It might be a you know i have a you know I have abdominal pain but then you talk to them and they might end up having problems with housing or or food or they can't afford their medications or there might be you know, interpersonal violence issues is always like these layers and layers and layers of, of issues that that happen. Um, there are expectations to move people through the emergency department because we have waits, long waits, like like a lot of emergency departments do, um, especially now when. So many ERs have, um, so many hospitals have lost staff, you know, nursing and ancillary staff and and oftentimes physicians. Mm-hmm. And so there are certain pressures and constraints to doing what we're doing um, and trying to sort of uphold what I think is the mission that... That drew so many of us into emergency medicine. It definitely drew me into emergency medicine, which was and is the social justice mission. Like, you know, we, we so many of my colleagues are, and myself we're, were so, you know, consider ourselves fortunate to be able to. You no know, care for people who who perhaps can't get care elsewhere um, and to, and to do that work um, is really meaningful and, and it makes these challenges a little easier because there is a, a deeper moral purpose to to what we're doing. So your second question <laughs> after this long prelude, how does this other side of my work uh, reveal itself in my daily, in my daily work in the emergency department, and it's every day, and it's with every patient practically, and that's largely what my book "Tornado of Life" is is about. Because what I I don't understand, really, that that is that we're, a medicine has is very much an evidence based; it's a science, right? Or it claims to be a science, which is which privileges evidence like scientific evidence. And um, and we try to take these complex problems and, and make them simple and find an answer. But what I deal with on a regular basis are people. And humans are very complicated. <laughs> and what they come in and t- what they tell me Is oftentimes experience are stories, like they're telling me stories, and these stories are rich with uncertainty and ambiguity. They might be really hard to tell. They're these are very vulnerable people trying to put into language experiences which they're just trying to make sense of themselves. Um and even and and so what I need to do um on a daily basis is try to make certain that is the story that they're telling the one that I'm hearing, and the two are not necessarily always the same because at the core of what what we do what I do in the emergency department and this is something that I sort of was playing with an idea that came that I've been exploring for years and years and years. Was that essentially at, at the essence of what of what emergency medicine is is are really pressured storytellers telling stories to pressured story listeners. You know, and and we have to get somehow to the heart of a patient's story um, in a limited amount of time while we're constantly being interrupted, while we're managing like 15, 20 other patients. Um, And and that's something which the human brain is like, it really quite isn't designed to do. Um, And so how do we, how do we do that? Like how, what, how, how, how can we, or how can we do it better? And that's, and it's a lot of the examples in the book um, hopefully come at that. Come at that question from different angles.
0: So, what are some of those stories that you came across during your work really impacted you?
1: The, I the 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 book is um, is designed to to examine. They're built around patients. Experiences with patients. Some of them are ex- my own experiences as a patient, uh, but they're they're really about me trying to grapple with their s- stories, or me having a sense of a deeper sense of of some of the challenges that we're facing. And so, you know, to give your listeners an example, a few examples of the range of the different type of uh, experiences that I've had that I write about. So one of the, one of the stories that I'm trying to that I try to to highlight is, and it's something that I'm reminded of time and time again, which is the fact that when when we give bad news to patients and their families, you know they're they're coming in, not expecting this. Oftentimes and, and and I, and I frame this as like, I feel like I'm an ambassador to, to their nightmares and what is my responsibility? Like, how do I do this in a, in a way that is empathic and responsible while also recognizing that when something, an outcome is not ideal, like, am I, culpable in some way? Did I miss something? Like is like sometimes you're, you're, even if you know that with 99.9% certainty, the patient was going to die or they came in and they came in and cardiac arrest, there's, if you care enough, there's no way you can question yourself and saying, did I, could I have done something else? Could I have done something different while also sharing this news with them? you know, and and also recognizing that the response that patients have, what families have to the death of their loved ones, you know, run all over the map. You know, I've had patients who were obviously devastated. I have patients who don't want to hear what I have to say and are pushing me back to go back into the, you know, into the resuscitation room. I have patients who have charged at me. Threatening me, and then just sort of collapse at my feet in tears. Um, I've had patients who were like, "Good for him." <laughs> he was—he just stuck us with a bill. Without um, and and then there were patients' families who were, you know, uh, unfortunately were were waiting for this news. You know, they knew things were going well, um, and it was not a matter of what; it was a matter of when. And how do you capture that experience? And and I wrote about that experience. uh, And then I compared that with some of the experiences of of during COVID, you know, when we had to have these conversations, not face to face, but over the phone, Um, you know, when we did not have this, we're not even sharing the same physical space. And, and which was a real, I think, change for many of us who you know we were taught not to, to try to have these conversations face to face and not to have it by phone. Um and you know all, a lot of rules went out the window um as we adapted to the many changes that happened during the pandemic. And 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 I felt like you know not only was I taking them to this this nightmarish island, but at least on the phone, like I also felt like I was leaving them there. Like I, I, when I give them the news in person, I can, you know, you can stay there with them. You have a social worker with you. You know, they're staying, you're staying there with them. They're, as they absorb this life-shocking, life-shaking news and this shocking news. And on the phone, it's like, you hang up. (laughs) And it's such a different, it's such a, Different way of departing, you know, um, and you know, and I also, you know, I've written about, I write about this this idea about moving on, and um, in the emergency department, like when something like tra- a travesty happens, a tragedy happens. What I write about in this particular essay is just a young, young, you know, young bunch of young people who got into a um, a fatal and a fatal car crash, you know? And then after this really tragic moment, like we all just sort of disappeared and went off and to our duties and saw other people and cleaned up and, and did what I, what we call like the bureaucracy of death. You know, you failed the death packets. You talk to the family, you, you call the organ bank, you, you notify various people and And you move on. And so the next night, this happened during an overnight shift. And and during the the next night, I was talking with one of my residents. I go, God, you know, I could not sleep. I couldn't stop thinking about this. And and my resident was a senior resident, this wonderful, wonderful, thoughtful guy, says to me, I couldn't sleep either. And then one of the nurses who happened to be on the night before, she overhears this and she goes, you too? I I couldn't sleep. And then they say, but we move on, right? That's what we do, as if that's as if that's normal. And in any other way walk of life, like you wouldn't be just moving on. Like and so what like what are what are the consequences of moving on? And like are we moving on because really because we have to, we can't take the time to honor this experience and to process this experience and 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 pay our respects to the person who died and the family that's being left behind? Or are we using an excuse as sort of like not to deal with this? Like and and we we sort of are hiding our own frailties and vulnerabilities and, and what's really difficult to deal with behind our, our sense of duty. Um and so that's what I you know I wrote about that. Uh another different type of example is uh has to do with the way stories operate and the fact that, you know, doctors should be experts in stories, you know, and and the anatomy of stories. And, um, and that's applied in a, a couple of, a couple of the essays and thinking about that we're always on a quest for answers that we don't necessarily think about, you know, what happened before, like when we're troubled, we don't know how to move forward, you know, to think more like creative writers and actually to, to take a step back. You know, and it's like, how did this character get here? Like, how did you he get here? Um, and that is that is sort of manifested in an essay, uh, an essay I wrote about was, which sort of borrows from a um, a Chekhov short story. And it's about sort of this idea about loneliness as an emergency. Um, and how do we respond to patients who might be coming in with physical complaints, but their real problem is loneliness. Um, and, um, and how we and how we construct stories. And one of the the essays I I talk about my own, you know, a lot of my essays um, in this collection are really revolve around moments when I didn't look so pretty, <laughs> and me coming to grips with that. And one of them had to do with you know how do we use an electronic medical record with someone who. Had a very had a very challenging experience in the emergency department in the emergency in the waiting room but an emergency department at a different hospital, which we had the records for in our electronic medical record, came to us, and I expected this bear of a person, and he was really kind, and and I was trying to figure out, God, what's going on? Like this is is this the right person? And it was, and and then I was was looking and putting pieces of things together. And I was like, well, maybe he was a sub, he was, he was, he's someone who was, his symptoms could be the signs of someone who's, and is a substance user and, and is in withdrawal. Cause I see evidence of the fact that he might've had a substance problem years and years and years ago. And of course, you know, our story-making minds like start putting things together. And, and at some point, you know, I kept on waiting for that moment. I kept on waiting for that person to appear and he never appeared, you know, and it was really just a story that I constructed in my head that I was waiting for him to come out. And, and at at a certain point I needed him To be that jerk. Like, I really needed him to be that jerk. Get anything just to let me off the hook because of the biases I had and the way I was constructing his narrative, which was nothing um, even close to his experience when I ended up talking to him. But I felt comfortable talking to him about what happened at the other hospital. And then what my obligation was to put in the medical record about you know, my experiences with him and to clean up what was written in the past um, and how they don't longer apply anymore. And so, you know, it's about this disconnect, um, you know, between the stories that we, that we, again, getting back to what I said earlier about this disconnect, the stories that we hear, um, and the storytellers—this, what this—the this, stories that patients are trying to tell us, and 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 uh, and how we and how we how we straddle that that distance. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs
0: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI—it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's Wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? So you mentioned that you were also a patient. So what were your experiences on the other side of this very thin line between being healthy and being ill?
1: <laughs> that was um, that was very, very interesting. Uh, and I, I have to tell you, Lena, the the hardest part of that experience um, was... The very thing that you just said, which is what everyone said, which is like, you know, you, it's, it's not like I wanted permission just to be a patient and not a doctor who was a patient, because my the doctors, you know, I in one of the essays I start with the being rounded on by a, a cardiothoracic surgery team because I was at, uh, many years ago I I went from being very well. And being young from my age to being older from my age suddenly. Um, and I described like I was collecting <clears throat> collecting medical problems like loose coins, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I I ended up having a, a pneumonia and atrial fib and atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heart rate. And I needed a new heart. And I needed to have my a heart valve repaired. My mitral valve needs to be repaired or replaced. And... And all this team of young doctors is looking at me and is like, you know, it must be really hard being on the other side as if – and there were certain things that were implied in that. Like one was like they were waiting to hear like something – like some bad habits that I had so they can ward off the evil spirits that this wasn't going to happen to them. You know, like, was I a smoker? Was I out of shape? Was I, no, I mean, I was, I was running, I was working out, I was eating okay. I was like, I write, like I was even flossing semi-regularly. I wasn't taking so, such good care of myself other than just being an ER doc and working, you know, crazy hours. Um, But that was my one, that was the one thing that probably was bad for me. And working when I was sick and all that nine yards. Mm-hmm. But they wanted, like, they wanted, like, a cautionary tale. They wanted, and then they wanted me to sort of share these ideas that this is what I learned and this is what's going to make me a better doctor as a result, you know, like that classic narrative, like the one of, you want this neat narrative. And I, I got to tell you, like, I was so resisting that narrative. You know, so like the good things, the things I learned from this, you know, from this experience is, you know, which is like hospital stretchers, especially ER stretchers are incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) And I tell patients all the time, I say, if you haven't had, if you don't have back problems, when you came into the ER, you are going to (laughs) leave, you're going to leave the ER with back problems. You know, the curtains are not walls, and you can hear. You hear things when you are, when you're laying there and you have nothing to do. You hear things, you know. And so to be more mindful of of that and realize that patients can hear everything. Um, I'm also. I was also became very sensitive with the experience of waiting, and not just the experience of time, but just the anxiety and the fear. Of what patients and families go through when they're waiting, um, and try to, and so you know, ultimately, I've, I've tried to be very more cognizant and mindful of that, and go back and and be in touch with them, even if we have we don't have news, but it's coming, and you haven't been forgotten, that type of thing. Um, and then, because of, especially here in the U.S., you know, our healthcare system is such a disaster um, that sometimes the the as awful as a patient's experience might be with illness or oftentimes dealing with our healthcare system while sick is even worse, you know? And so I try to, at my best, we, we try to plug people in to like as many services or get consultants involved or try to talk to people. So they don't, they don't have to help them along with that because oftentimes they're just making tons of phone calls. while all, all they need, they would they, all they really should be doing is sleeping. I um, arranging help for them to get their medications paid for that sort of thing. The, and lastly one thing I learned is that when you're a doctor and you're my patient, I make you get into a gown <laughs> because there's something about shedding because like I'm and I'm the and I am so guilty of this is that like I wouldn't get into a gown you know and, and it's because like I'm not a patient like I'm a doctor, I don't get sick. <laughs> right and so you know what i what I learned at that time because often you know the reason why i got into that trouble in the first place is that people would tell me they'd say you should go see a doctor you should see do this and do that and i would have a thousand excuses a thousand rationalizations for how i'm feeling and of course you know i probably if i took if i paid more attention if i didn't blow things off if i didn't rationalize things if i didn't think i was such a smart guy um I might not have landed in the situation that I did, um, so I tell doctors, "I go, you need to change into a gown." And they let they laugh at me. I go, "No, I'm dead serious." I go because there's something about changing out of your scrubs or changing out of your tie and shirt or dress or suit or whatever into a gown and accepting your role as a patient, and, and part excuse me, and part of that is. Accepting and honoring the vulnerability of being a patient, you know? And then, what I, the part that I'm not so proud of that I learned from being a patient is that I really became in t- more intolerant of patients who were rude or families that were rude or had unreasonable expectations or wanted work notes for like mundane things that. You know, when I when all the times like we were people caring for them were much sicker, and we were working at you know overnight shifts, um, you know, I I became cognizant of justice issues when it came to like our responsibility for our illness, meaning that. You know, I had one night in particular where I was caring for someone with alcohol use disorder who is very intoxicated, who fell down some stairs at like three in the morning, and he's yelling and screaming. And at the same time, like I'm caring for like this young mother with ovarian cancer, you know, and having, dealing with someone who's being somewhat challenging and saying, listen, you you got yourself in this situation, while also caring for someone who's you know, having a devastating, tragic disease for no fault of our own, and I know this is wrong. I know this is like a, you know, you when you when you go back to look at causation, it's going to be a very challenging thing, and this is a very tricky moral place to be at. Um, but I I write about some of those issues and those challenges of like being honest about how we deal with how how we respond to patients because it, it 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 does having our own temperature or emotional temperature, being able to reflect on our own moral temperature in the end, I think allows us to take better care of all patients.
0: You have a very rare superpower of being so observant and being empathic with your patients. So I was wondering, how do you keep a track of your own mental health and how do you sort of keep yourself uh, at that level where you can function well? (laughs)
1: <laughs> um um if um if you have the answer the <laughs> if any of you listeners have the answer um uh, i'm willing to i'd be open uh it's it's hard uh it's you know i, I uh, let me <laughs> let me come to this can I come to your question from different angles? I might not answer it directly, but I'm going to come close to it as best I can. <laughs> okay. So this is what we're going to do. So one is, I think you you need a I think you need a sense of humor first off, um, because I, I think a sense of, first of all a sense of humor I think with with patience is. Um, is really important because I think it's something that it doesn't work for all patients. I find that it works when you choose the right moment. It's a very human thing to share. Right. And, and I love this idea about, um, the writer George Sanchez wrote in an essay about, it describes humor as, um, as like a mode of sort of rapid truthing, You know, you get to the truth more quickly than we would otherwise be able to do, and and it's a shared thing. And you know, when and when 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 we respond to someone else's humor or or attempts at humor, hopefully they're good attempts at humor. um, You know, it's a sense of like opening yourself up a little bit, and and also a recognition of our shared humanity and our shared vulnerability and there's also a sense of god you know this is a crazy world we live in you know um so i feel like you need a sense of humor i also feel like you need a little bit of a a taste for the absurd and recognizing like there's especially in the united states in our healthcare system there's such an absurdity of like what how it operates and and what what it values and, and what it says it's trying to do and what it's able to do. Um, and then on a more sort of personal level, as far as my own processing of these experiences, I'd be lying if I didn't say that writing plays a huge part of that. Uh, I didn't think so. If you asked me this question um, 10 years ago, I, and I, and I used to go to places to give talks and and I would get these questions from students and, and I would go, no, I don't think there's any relationship between the two. And and I think I'm totally lying <laughs> uh, um, because there's something that happens when you, you get the chance to offload what's in your head or in your heart or the troubles that you're trying to grapple, that you're grappling with on a page like you you externalize it in a way that you get you get it like away and off and i i think two things happen when you do that one is it it in it itself is it an, an authentic experience to try to come to grips with some challenging experiences and to be very open and honest with Feelings, experiences, thoughts that perhaps you're not proud of, of sharing, but but they're for you. They're for you. They're for you only. And it's nice to sort of not just to get that out, but then to try to play with that and understand it. And why do I feel that way? And, and you know, this didn't happen, but what if I did happen? Or, oh, God, this is what I wanted to say. This is this patient. And this is what I didn't say. But what if I did? You know, and just to get that out. So, one is just sort of getting it out and having something to, to objective to see, to see yourself out there and to see it and to play with it. And then to, to really interrogate it in a way that is meaningful for you. And this is not meant for anything. This is meant for just you, for me. And then what also happens is I, I think it leaves leave space to be filled up again, you know, with these other experiences. And I also find that by, by working, and this is not an, this is, and everything I'm telling you, Kalina is, believe me, is nothing. This is not rocket science. I'm not, I'm not bringing anything that's wildly original. I'm just cultivating, I think, what a lot of other smart people have already said in in different ways in my own processing of that is that you know stories sometimes operate as sort of like simulations for our lives you know and i find that when i go through these experiences and i get them out mm-hmm. invariably i have other experiences that are similar to that or that remind me of that and i've already thought about this i've seen myself in these experiences in an intimate way on the page and it actually prepares me and allows me to handle these other experiences better or different or at least recognize my own emotional response and to and to and to to not go there or to i have a ready prepared defense mechanism or i have language that i would like to use instead of perhaps a more loaded language that that I really want to say. And, and, that, and that comes up time and time again. So it's both good for me. And I think it's also good for patients. And then the writer in me, I have to tell you that I love writing, you know, and it's really hard for me. Like I don't, I rewrite endlessly. Like I don't think I'm, I, th- I think I'm a, I'm a good writer. I don't think I'm a great writer. I think I'm a, I'm a pretty tenacious rewriter you know, like I'll rewrite things 15, 20 times to make sure I I get it right. And, you know, the editors who have worked with me have have oftentimes like lamented that. Um, but like I'm I'm constantly trying to rewrite, trying to get it exactly what I'm trying to say. Um, because you know, building sentences, I it's like I feel like this is a, there's a constructive element, there's a creative element to doing what we're doing. And and part of that is trying to like, am I being honest? Am I being truthful? Um can I say what I'm saying in the least amount of words so I'm not taking the reader's time? Um, can I be funny? Can I engage? Um, and am I doing this in a way that is, I think, authentic and honest and interesting. Um, and so all this, I think bleeds into the mental health piece. I mean, I, uh, one of the things I talk about is in um in the book is this idea about compassion, you know, and, and 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 this and in this one particular essay I write is is a it's a it's a really it's a freezing freezing night. And, and i'm working an overnight shift in the er it's a freezing night we have like boarding patients I mean, we have tons of most of our beds are full of people who are already admitted upstairs but there are no beds in the hospital so they're staying in the hot in the er and we have a a busy waiting room of people waiting to go back we don't don't have a lot of beds to work with and i'm trying to see people which all of us are trying to get people who we can get through through and one of the people who's ready to be sort of discharged is this one of our sort of regular alcohol um, people with alcohol use disorder who, you know, is, has housing issues and is essentially homeless. And and I start the essay with me like freezing, walking into the ER like at eleven o'clock for my shift, and and this and this gentleman is like sort of has been basically there all day sobering up and is ready to go home. Like I need that bed. Nothing medically wrong with him. In fact, if I keep him there, he can go into withdrawal. So it's better for me to get him out, but it's not home. It's like out onto the street into the very environment where I was so grateful to leave, to come into. Right. And, and, but like that's so wrong to do that, but he's, but he's been. This was like his second visit that day. He's he was there. He comes several times a day. He's burned so many bridges. We've tried to get him help. You know, we like all the things that we would do to help him. We've 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 done. Um, and I'm not helping him with his alcohol and with his primary problem with his alcohol use disorder, which he doesn't want help for. And I have all these people. I have thirty people or so in the waiting room who I who have, might have serious medical problems. So this, it's them. I have those people who I don't know. Who I'm trying to know who need to be who could use his bed too. And so, what does compassion look like in that situation? Right? Is compassion letting this homeless gentleman who has an alcohol use disorder stay in the ER um, overnight and sleep? And perhaps have to give him a sedating medication because he'll go into withdrawal, which might end up forcing him to keep him to stay in the ER longer. Um, or, or does compassion mean having compassion for the people waiting in the waiting room and trying to get them back, somebody else back into that bed. And we don't really talk about compassion as like a zero sum game. Like when you're being compassionate for one person means you not being compassionate to others. Like it's not as easy as, as like a tank problem. It's not like saying, you know, if you're compassionate, like you just need to be more compassionate. It's more complicated than that. You know, so what if we start with the question of what if everyone is compassionate, then what are ways or what are those situations where people are, you know, might come off or might appear to be to lack compassion? I think that's a more honest question. And that's what I sort of raised this one particular essay like, what does compassion look like in the situation such as this? Um, and, um, like, and I, you know, when a version of this, this piece came out years ago, like, I was, I had people who were like, thank you so much for we really putting language to this challenge that we face all the time. Cause it's not just this patient. I have like a whole bunch of patients like this patient that particular night, and many, and many, many nights. Um and then I have people who said, Hey, you are a heartless physician. <laughs> of course you can find spots in the er for and you know and it's tough to explain nursing ratios and the fact that you have the people watching patients sometimes these people you know people who are intoxicated or you know whatever if they get up and they walk and they fall it's like there's just a load of other complicating structural policy issues that that is tough to, to that that also factor into these decisions that we can't just sort of put you someplace um but those are the types of questions that I'm trying to address um, in this book.
0: So looking to the future, what kind of things you want to see change in our relationship to patients?
1: That's such a great question. On a, at a more, at the most simplest level, uh, I really feel that at least here, at least here in the United States, we have to we have to recognize the challenges that um, that healthcare providers, especially frontline providers, people who are dealing with undifferentiated patients, like you know, who have a, a host of problems who come in, um, uh, and the patients themselves, like the challenges that they're facing, um, and and honoring that and realizing that that their lives are complicated. And if we're really serious about helping them, we have to honor the complexity and the complicated nature of their lives. Um, And it doesn't always fit in a few minute visit or an ER visit. And we have to, um, you know, in the United States, at least, I, I feel what we need to do first and foremost is, you know, we need to really bolster and reward our primary care providers um, because they are the most important um this so the most important people in the healthcare system um and i and 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 you have to allow them to to do the the work that they want to do um um which is like really you know helping patients at, at, with with a multitude of needs um, and allowing them to have the time to do that and rewarding them for doing that as well. Uh, I, I feel that we have to sort of change the paradigm of medicine a little bit, which is focusing so much on problem solving, uh, which I feel when you look at, when you look at patients complaints as sort of these pieces of a question like the stems of a question that have an answer then you're thinking about like what is the answer like how can i solve this um and when patients oftentimes bring a, a wealth of so many different types of information to you right they'll go off in a in a, in a bunch of different tangents and and sometimes deciding like what what the story is, what the problem is, is is the first is the first challenge. Like you're making decisions, what what is relevant information, what is unrelevant information, and and, and allowing physicians and to be open about what they don't know and to value uncertainty in our clinical encounters and to train our trainees to realize that there are certain times that the most important thing that you can do with patients and and listening to patients is not just valuing their story, but, but actually taking a step back and saying, before I'm jumping to answer them, should I first be thinking about what are the questions I should be asking? Like, am I asking the right questions and to be curious about that and, and medicine being bold and saying, we're going to teach you that sometimes what's as important as knowing things is not knowing things and using your uncertainty as an ally to say, huh, I don't know what's going on here. And instead of saying, okay, I'm gonna create false certainty, which patients and families will look through when you just, we just slap a diagnosis on them, is to say, huh, how do I use this to ask better questions? And how do I recognize that feeling in myself? Um, and also just realizing that, like valuing the anatomy of stories and realizing that, you know, that what patients bring to us is not just a set of problems, but they bring a past with them. They bring with them hopes of their future and what their lives, you know, what they hope their life would be, or what their arc of their lives would be, um, and and honoring that and respecting that. And that, you know, like, let's say a pinky injury Um, A broken pinky might be one thing to a construction worker who's just going to tape it up and perhaps does heavy lifting. And it might be very different to someone, let's say, who's a musician who needs that pinky for their livelihood in a different way, you know, and being open to that. And also for us to be comfortable, you know, getting back to your question about um, mental health and processing um, is, you know, being, giving permission to um to clinicians to be vulnerable and also um, allowing that vulnerability to identify the vulnerability in our patients that oftentimes when they come when they come to us like what is another story and another patient in my day is oftentimes the highlight of a patient's is a narrative event in their life they made a decision to come to the er and and really framing that you know, as like, this is something important. And if I'm not finding out what's so important about this, I got to think differently, um, think differently about this. Um, And ultimately, you know, medicine prioritizes technology. We're so focused on like the latest, the latest technology, the latest toy. Um, But we can't forget that I think the latest technology means absolutely nothing if we get the patient's story wrong. And so the patient's story is first and primary, and we have to return back to that.
0: Well, this has been a really insightful discussion. So I suppose I have more technical question. So how does it work with coffee in the ER? Do you have like a bottomless bucket or how does it work with a fuel?
1: Um uh that's a that's a very, very good question because um because of because of very um various different sort of regulations, like sometimes we're not supposed to have coffee um and food in the ER, though we all generally will have it in a certain place, we'll have it hidden somewhere, um, out of patient because it's not supposed to have any food to drink in patient care areas. So there's certain areas where You can't, you know, you can't have your coffee. Um, And what's most challenging, which is oftentimes not spoken about as often, if at all, is how the pandemic has changed coffee drinking habits, at least for me. Because when you're drinking, because when you're drinking coffee, you know, and you have like a couple of levels of masks on, you know, if you have an N95 mask, and then you have like a surgical mask on top of that to protect your N95 mask, and you have a face shield. If you try drinking coffee, <laughs> you spill on your face shield. Okay. And believe me, there was so many times, especially in the beginning, when oh my, it was, it was so many embarrassing moments um, because, like you see, there you forget it's on it. Like as it happens also when you're talking on the phone and you're trying to like talk to someone, and you, and you get caught in caught with like oh wait a minute i got all these things in my face um so it's um it's in a, we'll just call it an evolving an evolving skill <laughs> and um and i i am i am totally astounded by my colleagues who actually don't drink coffee and don't you know um i've gotten much much better at uh, at my coffee consumption uh but uh but yeah but it's 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 right below oxygen i think on the necessity level of what gets you through a shift
0: well you you need some skill to navigate all of those layers of masks It's, it's it's
1: it's it's so it can be you know Depending upon when it happens, sometimes, like when this, things are stressful, you know, something like that happens and it pushes you over the edge. And sometimes something like that happens and you just start laughing, you know, because like, oh, my God, this is so absurd. This is so absurd. Um, just give me a cup of coffee because your mouth is so dry and you're falling asleep and all that. Anyway, heh, there you go.
0: So what are you focusing on now and what will be your next project?
1: uh. uh... As I said earlier, um, you know, I'm, I'm, always attracted to elements of, of, um, of what I'm, of my life that are, that I find emotionally troubling. I'm trying to figure out myself, you know? And so I think there are certain aspects of, uh, different aspects of, of medicine, um, as a whole that I am, um. That I'm working. That's sort of I'm trying to tease out exactly what it's going to look like. I'm. I have a, a bunch of s- smaller pieces that are shaping themselves into something, and so that's usually how I operate. Like I have. I, I'm not oftentimes aware of that sh- the narrative thread that's running through a a book, um, but there invariably is, and uh, and so I'm simultaneously writing. Towards it, like towards that one line, while also take kind of takes a step back and figure out what that line is. So I have uh, a nonfiction book that I'm currently working on, and I also have a a, um, a novel that I'm also trying to piece together, um, and that's that's in sort of beginning phases, but moving slowly but inexorably forward. Or backward, who knows? But after that, like, I don't think I don't know. I gotta tell you, like, I don't know. I don't know if my brain's that big. I think after these two books, I don't know if I have much more interesting things to say. <laughs> I hope I do. But I sat there and I was go, you know what? I had this book that I did, Tornado of Life, that I, I wanted to, I knew it was going to be something and it was going to be framed around the and it, it, it cohered. Wonderfully came together. Wonderfully, I had an editor who was really, you know, um, Bob Pryor, who was just so open to um, how the book was going to be shaped because I didn't want to just write about experiences, I wanted to, to take the reader into an experience and for them to experience the sort of a little bit of the destabilization and the uncertainty that we all feel. So hopefully it's not just the content, but the context and the book is designed and, and structured in, in a very purposeful way. And I'm very grateful that MIT Press and my editor was was really open to uh, allowing us to take those chances because it's not written like a lot of other doctor books. Um, and, and then I have this other nonfiction book that I'm work that I, I have in my, in my head and this novel. And I like beyond, beyond those, like, I, I don't, I, 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 that might be it. Like, I don't know. I hope it's not. Um, but I, uh, unless I'm driven to write, like, I feel like I have something new to say. Like you know, so oftentimes I let a lot of other smart people in the world, um, take on <laughs> the other things that perhaps I, I would like to tackle, but I just I'm not smart enough or or I don't think I can bring something new new to it um, in a particular way. So um, to be continued, I, I I hope at some point in the future allows me to to have another conversation with you, Galina.
0: Oh, gosh, you're way too humble. <laughs> I'm really hoping that's not going to be the last ones that you're going to write.
1: Well, we'll see. I'm, I'm working. I'm, I'm doing my best to keep going.
0: And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: So um, you can go onto my website, which is um, jbaruch.com, which is J-A-Y-B is in boy, A-R-U-C-H.com, which actually has a link to pre-order for my book, which is, it, it has the, the The uh, is published by MIT Press, but it's distributed through Penguin Random House, and it has their um, their site on the um, on my website. It's also available through um, through you know Amazon. Um, It'll be available through also also independent booksellers, and I hope listeners will support our local booksellers. Um, and, uh, and I can be, I can be reached at, uh, on Twitter. Um, is at, at J, letter J, just the letter J Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H-M-D. Um, and, um, and those are probably the two best places. I'm also, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, as well.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: I am so honored to be here with you. I so enjoyed this and um and I wish you my best and your listeners my best and and I want everyone to have a, a happy and a healthy summer.